Now, which of these two following propositions is the more, well, shall we say, disputable? One, Northamptonshire County Council is strawberry-flavoured. Two, the following words should be banned from official use. Stakeholder. Step change. Strategic. Strategic priorities. Streamlined. Sub-regional. Subsidiarity. Sustainable. Sustainable communities. Synergies. OK, then, well... Well done if you spotted these options are both connected to local government. But which is, well, not wrong exactly, but more open to logical dispute? The ban on the word stakeholder and synergies and so on? Or the proposal for a strawberry-flavoured Northamptonshire County Council? In January 2008, Catherine Kurzweil, the council's new chief executive, went on YouTube with this message to the public. But I want you to think about taste the strawberry as a message. And that strawberry flavour will be the flavour that is Northamptonshire County Council. Sounds a bit weird, and I hope I've got you interested in that, because we'll develop what that flavour really is that we get across to all our customers. Now that requires us to have really good communications right across the organisation and really good training and development for all our staff so we know how to put that strawberry into practice. Soon after, and unconnected with the strawberry affair, the local government association sought to ban the town hall use of 200 jargon words and phrases in an attempt to make councils speak more clearly. Words and phrases like... Blue sky thinking. Can-do culture. Improvement levers. Pathfinder. Enough. Here's Miss Kurzweil's explanation to the BBC Look East programme about her strawberry ambitions vis-à-vis Northamptonshire. It's a metaphor. Um, we're a customer uh, organisation. And so using metaphors about customer culture was a way to get people interested in the idea. Not all Northamptonshire folk were convinced. It does grab attention, but it grabs attention in a, in a slightly strange way. You listen to it, you think, what is she talking about? And maybe she's tried it before, maybe in a job interview she suggested she was a pomegranate or something and got the job, I don't know. But if you're actually sitting there, after a while, would you go, yeah, strawberry, we're going to get on with this now, or what is going on here? Answers. Trying to ban words is futile. Can't be done. Anti-democratic, even. You simply can't eradicate words from existing or being used any more than you can eradicate thought. You can encourage better use, but ban? No. So, so we're going to have to do some blue-sky thinking outside the box in order to deliver a user-friendly interface here, because coining of language, even if it's held to be poor coinage, is good natural, healthy. So the Northampton strawberry flavouring is right. Although a tad misguided, possibly. The ban, wrong. Although the wrong can so easily surface as right. The very attempt to ban those words gives them a new kind of rightness. Comic, pretentious, silly. This programme is called So Wrong It's Right in order to show that what is held to be wrong can, by dint purely of usage, be right. And often is. Its mission is to boldly go into the outer reaches of the language badlands. A space inhabited not by offensive language, but language held to be wrong, which often isn't. Or once was, but isn't now. Or is now, but won't be soon. This is Jeremy Butterfield, lexicographer, dictionary compiler and writer on words. On the split infinitive. You could say that the Star Trek crew have done the English language a great service by blowing away this ridiculous superstition. 
or if not blowing it away, at least making it very visible and allowing people to break this so-called rule. You know, that is the most famous split infinitive in the English language, isn't it? To boldly go, people say that you should not put a word between the verb go and the marker to. Why do they say that? This is a rule which people have been trying to impose for the last several centuries. Why? Because they based English grammar on Latin grammar. Latin grammar doesn't work in the same way as English, so it's ridiculous to try and straightjacket English grammar to Latin grammar. But it's a very long established tradition. I would define it as a superstition. Yet, which language lover among us doesn't feel split by the opposing pressures of tradition and logic when it comes to change? I can hear myself saying this, and on the one hand, I'm just describing it, and I'm trying to be an objective linguist, but on the other hand, my inner grumpy old man is getting the better of me and coming out in my voice. And I think that's possibly a split personality that a lot of people find they have with regard to these issues. I mean, there's one. Every time I hear with regards to these issues, and I've just used that awful word, I wince. But does it really matter in the end? Of course it matters. What, after all, do we tell the children? Beth-Ann Marshall is Senior Lecturer in English Education at King's College London. Well, I don't say anything to children about split infinitive because I don't think it's a big thing. So I don't say, you must never split an infinitive. What you're trying to develop in English is a really good ear for the language. Yet some people say, you've got to know the rules before you can subvert them. But actually, that isn't true, I don't think, because some people have a real feel for the way in which language works and yet don't obey the rules. And we already know most of the rules that matter, not by having been taught them in a classroom, but by having learned them by hearing them in use. There is a rule in English that the subject of a sentence comes before the verb. I think, therefore I am. You cannot say, think I, therefore am I. That is a rule of syntax. That is a rule of the English language which all English speakers know. And it's not something that people need to legislate about. Syntax, yes, that is a rule. But that is not the rule that people tend to get hot under the collar about. Or about which people tend to get hot under the collar. Fine, let's, let's start with a real under-collar heater. Spelling. Beth Ann Marshall. You don't have to be an accurate speller of English to write really well. Um, Homer Melville was practically illiterate if you just looked at his spelling and his wife corrected all his mistakes. And even Scott Fitzgerald didn't spell accurately at all. But they wrote superbly. So you do need some people who can spell accurately and some people who can't. Having said that, the etymology of English is so complex that actually the way in which words are spelt alters over time. There need to be people who spell very accurately because otherwise we couldn't understand. Take the example of the word peas, P-E-A-S-E, -E, as in the rhyme, peas pudding hot, peas pudding cold, peas pudding in the pot nine days old. Peas was the singular for what we now call a pea, P-E-A, and people interpret it as a plural, knocked off the S 
and formed back formed this singular P. So you could say when they first started doing that, it was a mistake. The word P was a mistake. It became right because people started using P-E-A as a singular. It became right through usage. Language is democratic, I maintain. The way people use language determines how it develops, how it progresses, how it changes. And that, more or less, is the burden of our tale. Trying to stop language changing is a knut or knut-like exercise. We've allowed, encouraged even, our language to rebel against rulemaking. It's been shaped by usage, hence its wonderful unwieldiness. Staying with spelling, at which we're all so good, aren't we? Here's a toughie. Which single letter of the English alphabet corresponds to the most commonly used vowel sound in the English language? Come on, answer. Ah, dear. You see, it was a trick. None of them. So which is the commonest vowel sound? Butterfield? Uh. It's a rather unappealing, unattractive sound. Uh. The sound that you get in above. That sound is called a schwa. That's S-C-H-W-A. And it's the commonest vowel sound in English. Schwa comes from the Hebrew and the word refers to emptiness. It's really a rather unobtrusive little thing. Now, schwa can be an E, as in after, number. It can be an O, as in obey. And it can be a U, as in success. So why don't we have a new symbol to represent the schwa, which would avoid the problem? That's something spelling reformers would leap at. There is an English Spelling Reform Society which has all sorts of weird and wonderful suggestions for making English much more logical and simpler, but those have never been put into practice. So, as a system for consistently transcribing speech into text, English spelling itself is inherently faulty, you could say. And vocabulary-wise, English has been guilty of, well, some would say theft, if not reckless liberalism in the way it pinches bon mots from other languages. And if that weren't enough, it has invented a whole category of wrong words made right. Malapropisms are just funny mistakes. He is the very pineapple of politeness. More fruit to go with the Northamptonshire strawberry. She meant pinnacle, of course. But when these mistakes are slowly adopted into common usage, like just desserts with a double S, they're called eggcorns. Because someone once said... From tiny acorns, mighty oaks do grow. How true. Of course, it's all very well for lecturers and writers and council leaders and even broadcasters to bang on about the liberality of our language and the suggestion that we're powerless to right wrongs. Some of you may now be wanting to leave this fluffy land of ivory towels and get your hands dirty with a horny-handed ton of soil, so to speak. Here's a man who has, day after day, to grapple with English as it is written. Times sub-editor Gavin Hadland's job is to right wrongs in the name of accuracy. Things like uh, miners refuse to work after death. Another one was uh, drunk gets nine months in violin case. Stolen painting found by tree. Another one was protesters tried to spoil play but actors succeeded. Um, and my favourite one of all is 30-year um, friendship ends at altar. 
a really common mistake you see in papers all the time. A good passer and crosser of the ball, Beckham's career began in London. Oh, so his career was a good crosser and passer of the ball, was it? And I think uh, if, if you've done Latin at school, that often helps because you kind of train to see certain words agreeing with what's gone before. If you've been brought up to understand all, all that, you kind of think, well, why can't other people? Why, why can't all writers follow those rules? And maintain the same standards. I mean, it's not as if our brains are eroding away. Why should we see standards drop and drop and drop and exams become easier and easier? Why can't language be the same as it was 20, 30 years ago? And all newspapers have a written set of rules, a style guide, so why not impose an agreed set of rules which we can all share? One that will last for the next 30 years or more. The answer, I'd argue, could be explained using the name of the medium we are sharing at this very moment. Face me for a minute, unless you're driving or ironing. Come on, over here. Now, very few of you call the appliance you're looking at the wireless. Although people did, and do in diminishing numbers. Ask a teenager what wireless means today. Well, in fact, you don't have to bother. We've done it for you. But yeah, wireless internet. So you know you don't have to plug a thing into the side of your computer, and you get those like wireless headsets, those Bluetooth things, and those blokes walking around look like they're talking to themselves with it in your ear. And then you get home phones that you can walk around with, like wireless phones. And I suppose mobiles are wireless as well, really. And so um, internet, Bluetooth, and phones without wires. Aha! Uh-huh. But teenagers display their underwear above their trousers and say bad when they mean good. That kind of self-contradiction would never happen if we all aspired towards using the Queen's English, would it? There are some words which are so wrong they're right, and so right they're wrong. Let's take a well-established case like sanctions. Sanction can either be the permission to do something, the government gave him sanction to do that, or it can be a prohibition on doing something, to apply economic sanctions. So there's a word which has two completely opposite meanings, and the technical name for those words is contronyms. What they demonstrate is that, you know, rightness and wrongness can occur in a single word, which can mean the opposite of itself. Even the notion of the Queen's English is negotiable here. Loyal subject that I am, I have to point out that Queen Victoria is widely quoted to have said, of the way Prime Minister Gladstone addressed her, He speaks to me as if I was a public meeting. Oh, but the subjunctive, the dear old subjunctive, much loved by French teachers and l'Académie Française. It is in English an endangered species. People are using the Queen Victoria version more and more. If this was, or if this were, a law, it would be increasingly hard to enforce. What was seen as correct subjunctival usage is now as low as 55%. But how do we know that figure so accurately? The answer is in the interrogation of a huge database of language called the corpus. What is it? Jeremy Butterfield. Aye. Vast, enormous database of language, the Oxford English Corpus, and it contains 2.3 billion examples of words being used. Um, A lot of it comes from the World Wide Web, and it covers the whole spectrum of written materials, you know, from weblogs to technical reports to sports reports to newspapers to academic monographs, journals. It covers 
a vast range of language, which makes it really representative. We have software programs, which means we can look at each and every word and see the typical ways in which it's used. Because we look at language as it's really used, thanks to the corpus, a more helpful way of looking at the dictionary is to consider it as a guide, not a rule book. An infuriating example. Disinterested is increasingly being used in the sense of not being interested rather than impartial. Soon it will lose the battle and dictionaries will record that use as the more common and it will slip into what we term correct usage. Regrettable. The loss of a fine distinction, but irrevocable. Or irrevocable. Now, if I were entirely disinterested here, and I'm not, I think language shaping by usage is inevitable. If I were, though, I would say, perhaps computers are accelerating change. The increased ease with which we can now digitally track changes in language usage means we're more open to allowing change. Computers oil the wheels of the handcart in which we're all going to hell. But computers can also play a part in policing language. We'll come on to that in a minute. And I want you to remind me by saying buffalo, 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 buffalo. Thanks. But before that, let's return to French for a moment, which has the reputation for being a protectionist language, as opposed to English's laissez-faire character. Now... If you use a steak knife, you're using two Viking words. Or if your pyjamas are decorated with swastikas, you're using language derived from two Indian words. Louis XIII and Cardinal Richelieu, who wouldn't be seen dead in swastika pyjamas, started the Académie Française to make sure nobody used French wrongly. Beth-Anne Marshall. The protectionist model of French is less successful than the open all doors and let it all come in model. The Academy says, I'm going to have a very protectionist view of our language and of French. And that, at first, seems much safer because you think, yes, we're going to protect it and we're going to put a barrier around it and nothing else will infiltrate it. Recently, though, Gallic eyebrows were raised when a new version of Le Petit Robert, France's favourite dictionary, was republished. It allowed in foreign words. It permitted all sorts of neologisms. It relaxed Richelieu, liberalised Louis XIII's still evident intentions. Its compiler, Alain Ray, is something of a celebrity in France, which shows you how seriously they take their language, and he knew he was sticking his neck out when he gave alternative spellings in French equal weight. That was the reason of, of the shock <laughs> about it. Spelling is a terrible problem because many words have uh, different spellings and only one solution is considered as good. Oral language is free, is quite liberal, too liberal probably. And writing is terribly constrained. When young people learn to write, it's necessary for them to apply very strict rules. And when they speak, not only they speak differently from usual rule, but uh, there are influences of other languages. We try to reflect the reality of language. I used to say that a good dictionary is not a conservatory, but an observatory. 
In a way, the gap between spoken and written forms has always been a problem when it comes to trying to codify any language. But French had the additional problem that l'Académie Française, now far less of an influence, inevitably had a greater effect on the written than on the spoken. So the gap widened. I think that the political intention created the Académie Française and the way I applied the very strict rules on the writing has effect during all the history of modern French. So it is a political matter. And France in 1789 became a republic. But in fact, profoundly, it's still a monarchy <laughs> from the linguistic point of view. There is one place where the state demands that linguistic lassitude cannot rule, especially where spoken English is concerned. Yet it's a place where difficult language and the need for clarity can collide. The courtroom. District Judge Stephen Gurlis is a leading voice in the campaign to make courtroom language more accessible. Twenty years ago, had lawyers used the kind of plain English Judge Gurlis now advocates in court, it wouldn't have gone down well. I would say that twenty years ago, if you addressed uh, judges uh, concerning cases in a form that one would regard now as plain English, you would have got some raised eyebrows to the effect that, you know, uh, I'm sorry, there are certain conventions and you're not following those conventions. We're now in a new era. We must talk for the benefit of those for whom we operate, and that is the public. Law, by its very nature, involves a degree of formality, and therefore archaic language is uh, considered to be more formal than everyday speech. The other thing is, of course, a little more subtle, is that, of course, by maintaining its own language that only lawyers understand, it means that the client has to instruct a lawyer in order to assist him through the impenetrability of the language which is used in court. So, in a sense, it's self-serving. It keeps lawyers in business because they understand the language, they understand the processes, but the principle is that the members of the public do not. And they, I think it is entirely right that legal language is at a level at which everybody is able reasonably to understand. If I'm the ordinary Joe in the street and I'm listening to this, I will say, well, I don't really understand what's going on. These people are in a nice little club of their own. Judge Gurlis has hit upon an important point when he talks of a club, a singular context. There is no single English language. There's the English of the classroom, the courtroom, the bedroom, the boardroom. It would be wrong to try and make all English right by applying a standard set of rules, grammatical or otherwise. And if not wrong, then beyond the wit of man. But some word processing software already offers, infuriatingly, to correct your grammar. Suppose, just suppose a computer program could, according to a set of rules laid down by a modern committee of ratios, make wrongs right. Stephen Pullman is Professor of Computational Linguistics at Oxford University, and it is to him that I remarked with grammatical accuracy and oblique relevance, Buffalo, 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 Buffalo. Buffalo is an unusual word in that in American English it can be a verb meaning to confuse or bamboozle as well as being an odd plural. It's a word like sheep or fish where the plural is the same as the singular. So buffalo can buffalo buffalo 
buffalo confuse other buffalo. Uh, it's also the name of a place, uh, so we can have buffalo from buffalo or buffalo buffalo. Buffalo 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 is one perfectly valid syntactic interpretation of, of that. It needs some capital letters in the right place, but that's an interpretation that a computer might pick up. So it's, it's almost like one of those games like where you can get all those hads in a row. Or the one that um, people who get annoyed by the dangling preposition rule make up. So things like, uh, what did you bring the cup that I wasn't supposed to drink out of up for? Yes, I had an even naughtier one, which is a child who wanted to be read a bedtime story and their mother brought a book about uh, Australia. So it was, what did you bring the book uh, to read of out of about down under up for? <laughs> which is very silly. I remember as a child reading somewhere a story about a computer that was asked to translate from English into Russian uh, the phrase out of sight, out of mind, uh, and it came up with invisible idiot. <laughs> so that might bring us on to a set of tools more accurate than the current ones being used for checking not just spelling but grammar. Everyone knows that the, the leading word processor has a grammar check. Most people turn it off because it's offensive and ridiculous. Although you can, I think, lay down more rules than you might think. These days we have programs that are capable of, of parsing quite large chunks of, of English language, provided it's of the banal, humorless, Wall Street Journal kind of prose. Anything creative is, is, is much more taxing. And that sort of reminds us that between connotation and denotation is the space in which most of us inhabit the language landscape. And it's not a place in which the rules and tabulations of language can easily be laid down, is it? I think it's very unlikely, because as soon as you produce a set of rules which try to govern your usage, it's in human nature that you try to find creative ways of violating those rules for comic or poetic effect. And the more frequently that happens, the more likely it is that it'll become a standard part of the language. An example of that would be somebody who says, I don't do angry. The first time I heard that, I thought, that's weird. But now I do angry all the time. <laughs> if, as a result of this programme, you are doing angry, forgive us. Our aim is to show how we are collectively in charge of our own language and how the way we use it shapes it. Truth and clarity and appropriateness are the most important criteria, so we leave you with a sentence from Judge Stephen Gurlis, or rather a sentence ing an imaginary, experimental one, to show that important messages, like a judge doing angry on behalf of the state, should be delivered in a way the sentenced, the person taking the rap, understands. The rap. Get it? <laughs> I did pose a question to other judges, that if you were going to sentence somebody in a language that they would understand, how would your sentence sound? One of my colleagues came up with this. Norman Stanley Fletcher, Fletcher. the law it come to get you, so for sentence gonna text you, today's bad news, news. badass petty criminal, mitigation minimal, your brief he didn't quibble, bro you going down. down. Fry's English Delight was presented by Stephen Fry. Taste the strawberry. strawberry. The readers were Toby Longworth and Carolyn Pickles, and the producer was Nick Baker. It was a testbed production for BBC Radio 4. So this ain't gonna thrill ya. Take five in the chiller. Hope your cellmate ain't a killer of HMP Slade. Slade.